Okay, now you can open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and you can get there, and then you can guess for a while where we're going to go with that. Uh, but before we do uh, get into the scripture, and I tell you where to look, and we're going to have them on, on the screen, um, on your screen as you're looking at your TV or your phone. Um, but uh, before we get there, I do want to say uh, about a week ago, I guess it was a week ago, or a week and a half, two weeks ago, I think, I was out in Idaho, and we had a time of, uh, with the home group out there. Uh, we had church on Sunday. And I had this message that I'd been working on, this message, and so as I was there, I jotted down some notes from what I could remember of it, and uh, we had Bible study, or we had church. And uh, so for those of you out in Idaho, this will be very familiar, and it's a little more in-depth. Uh, I may have mentioned that when we were there. Uh, but I do want to get this message to everyone because I, it just it speaks volumes. and Everything speaks volumes. But uh, I hope it does for you tonight. Um, we're turning to Matthew, uh, Luke chapter 7. Uh, verse, we're going to begin at verse 36. And before we begin there, I do want to mention that it is important, right? It's Bible study time, and it's important that we, we learn the Bible, that we, we know the Bible, we know the stories, and, because that's good. It changes our lives. But living it is our goal. Living the word, living the things that we learn is the goal. And so for myself, I like to look, look at the scriptures and then try and study it, learn it, but then find out how does it apply to me? How can I get what I've just learned and it change my life or help me in my daily life for the week, uh, for whoever I have to deal with, people that might be difficult to deal with or maybe not so, or how can I be used for ministry? So I like to look at the scripture and try and look at it and try and see, do I want to be like this person? How can I be more like that person? Or how can I not be like that person in the scriptures? Because there's a lot of people in the scriptures that we don't want to be like. So let's look at Luke chapter 7. We're, we're, we're in a place where something is going to take place. And you might be reading ahead already. But uh, there's something that's taking place. In fact, uh, John the Baptist had sent two of the disciples to Jesus to find out if he was the one or if they should wait for someone else. And it says that when they, when they asked Jesus, it says at that very time, and this is important, at that very time, in the Greek it means at that moment, at that very moment, Jesus was actually in the middle of healing people. Uh, the lame were walking. In fact, he says, tell John that the lame walk and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. Uh, because he was doing these things. And so people knew this. And that's important because of what's going to transpire in beginning in verse 36. What's also important in, in Luke 30, Luke 7, uh, Luke 7, verse 30, we see a phrase in there where uh, it says that the, the Pharisees and the lawyers were, uh, were rejecting God's purpose. They weren't becoming, I guess, they didn't become John the Baptist's disciples. They weren't listening to what John the Baptist had to say. And John the Baptist was pointing to Christ. And the Pharisees will play a big role in what we're about to read. So let's read through it first, and then we'll back up to it. Luke 7, verse 36. Follow with me. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him, Jesus, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster uh, alabaster vial of perfume. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with her hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Look at verse 39. 
Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. So that's what's taking place here. And there's more that goes on that we'll get into. But I want to back up to that verse 36 and look at this uh, this situation, because again, I like to look at the scriptures and say, okay, what was actually happening here? Uh, what is taking place and, and how can I learn from this? How is this, this scenario or this, this situation going to change my life? How can I put myself there? And we do want to put ourselves, I do personally, am I, am I like that Pharisee? Am I like that woman? Should I be like the Pharisee or the woman or whatever in whatever context, whatever it is we're studying and so let's do that tonight. Luke 7, 36, backing up. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. So he's asking Jesus to come and dine at his home and, reclined, and he reclined at the table. Now, the Pharisees, it's important to know the Pharisees and who they are. And you're probably familiar, you've heard this through multiple sermons and what have you. But they were separate. They were the separated ones, the Pharisees were. And they had a, a, a rigid adherence to rituals, to tradition, and they ultimately, which ultimately led them to legalism. So they're very legalistic, and they were the religious leaders of the time. And, you know, when you look at the Pharisees, and, you know, we, we can't just judge one, all of them by one, but they, I believe they were well-meaning in, in some cases because they took precautions. They got the law of Moses, and they tried to guard themselves from sinning and added restrictions. And, you know what, when we, we're on, if we're going to be honest with ourselves, we, too, take precautions. We do things that not everyone else does to keep us from sinning. We do things that will guard us from uh, becoming involved in sin or slipping back into the ways that we used to uh, be involved in. And we do these things, but it becomes legalistic when we expect or we demand everyone to do the same. And the Pharisees were, were of this mindset. And they, were, they became legalistic. They became self-righteous. You had, in the Pharisees, you had people like Nicodemus, who was one who went to Jesus at night because he wanted to know who he was and, and what was going on with Jesus. And he went in the dark of night to talk to Jesus, and he represented, clearly by the Scriptures, he was representing a group. There were some Pharisees, there were religious leaders that were curious about Jesus. And some of them had sincere questions. They had a sincere curiosity of Christ because they knew he had to be from God and there were the others that the extreme the other side of the spectrum that they would try to trick Jesus they would try to test him they would challenge him publicly or even in a setting like this so look at verse 36 it says the Pharisee was requesting and that Greek word for requesting is eratao eratao this word means to to entreat or to beseech to beg he really wanted jesus at his house to dine and and why you know we we can we can go on and think and we'll we'll see why when we look at the scriptures we see what's going on but he was requesting him he was begging him he really wanted beseeching jesus to be there and we can think wow that is pretty cool because he want he really wanted jesus to be to have dinner at his place but he wasn't sincere and that's where it all changes. And that's where we have our first person in this situation, which is that Pharisee. 
He was there more to maybe entrap Jesus, to accuse him, to find something to accuse him for. You know, in Proverbs 16.2, look at this verse. In the NIV it says, All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. In the New Living Translation it says, pure in their own eyes. It's, the word eyes is ayin. The word ayin is having to do with your spiritual or mental faculties. So there's things that people do that seem right in their own mind, in their own heart, in their own eyes. And we see something here. Perhaps he thought he was doing the right thing. Perhaps he thought bringing Jesus in to, well, let's say expose him, to trap him, because maybe he really didn't believe Jesus was who he claimed to be. Whatever the the case is, when we think about this, people... Because then this is how it can apply to us, and we, we can see this in the world, and hopefully not in our lives to this extreme. But people, they often request to have God in their homes. They actually have a desire to have God in their home in one way or another. But not necessarily to only have God in their homes, but unfortunately not in their hearts. So there are people that are okay with God to a certain degree, being involved in their household, but not in their hearts. For example, they'll pick and choose certain godly values. Um, They might um, have the the family pray for meals. They might do things that are godly to whatever degree. They might buy their child a kid's Bible because, after all, he'll learn good stories and it'll help him be a good kid. And maybe they'll place a Bible in the living room on the coffee table. Maybe they'll even have it open. Maybe they'll even highlight a verse so that uh, it shows that, hey, we have a Bible in this house or, or what have you. They might even send their children to a Christian school and not being Christians themselves. Because they, now, when I think of these things, I'm not mocking it. I'm not belittling it. What I'm pointing out is I think myself, deep down, I think, praise the Lord. Because, you know, at least they're doing something spiritual. They're, doing, they're trying to do something that they know is good and right, and they're just trying to get maybe just enough in their household, but that's like leaving a door open for the Lord, where something powerful can take place. And so it's unfortunate, though. Some people will say, well, we'll take God this much and this much and this much, but we'll live this way. And that's, it's, it's, that's sad, but, you know, it takes place, and that's kind of, you know, the reality of life. But here, let's look at this, um, this dinner uh, this scenario here, because it's, it's interesting to note here that when they had these dinners, these dinners were set up in a way that they were somewhat public. People knew about them. People knew they were going to happen. People would actually gather and they would watch. They'd even listen. Sometimes the doors, we understand the doors may have been left open for people to actually come in and see and watch and what's going on because they wanted to hear the conversations that were taking place. You see, if a Pharisee had someone in, it might have been some dignitary. It might have been Jesus. It may have been someone who had some wisdom, someone that was going to be, have some heavy conversation. And after all, it would look pretty good because the neighborhood would see like, whoa, who's there? Wow, you know, look who he mingles with. And so there's kind of a show that would take place and not always bad, but this is how these dinners were, were, were handled, would take place. So look at Luke eleven forty three. I want to explain something because I still want to emphasize the heart of the Pharisee and the guy that we're talking about here. 
In Luke 11:43, Jesus says something, and he says this, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love to be seen. They love to have uh, the, the, just the greetings of the people. They want the chief seats. They want to be prominent. They want to be seen. And look in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus said this, When you pray, speaking to believers, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. So this guy, this Pharisee, his name is Simon, he has Jesus over. He begs, he wants to have Jesus. Jesus may have been a hot item to have in your home because after all, the conversations that were probably going to take place And maybe it was an opportunity to show him up or whatever. But when we think of the situation, the scenario, people were going to be gathered, people would know, and people would see. And so this was kind of the heart set of a Pharisee, unfortunately. But on our side, or I should say on the believer's side, Romans 12, 16 says this, and this should be our heart set, the believer's heart set. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You see, we should look to bless God with whom or, or, or even the reason why we meet with people. Not for some ulterior motive, but because we want to bless God in whoever we see, whoever we meet with, whoever we talk with. But that's not the situation taking place here. So they wanted the best seats. They wanted to be seen. They wanted attention. They were the religious leaders, and they did not want Jesus coming in and taking them or taking their spot. So here's something really cool because of the mindset of the Pharisee, wanting to be the best seats. There's a passage in in Luke chapter 14, and we're going to read through that. Uh, Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 7. Let's read through each verse. 7 through 11, it says, And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, verse 8, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you might be invited or might have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give up your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. Say, you're in this guy's seat. This guy's more important than you. In verse 10, but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So now this is, I, say, I share this passage because Jesus is giving some great spiritual advice here. And you know what? We need to pay attention when Jesus speaks. Do you recall the old commercials? And I think I say this all the time. The old commercials of E.F. Hutton. I think it was E.F. Hutton, financial advisor or what have you. Somebody waved. And they would say, there's a commercial, everybody's talking and having coffee, and it says, well, when E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. And everybody would get quiet and listen to see what the financial uh, E.F. Hutton has to say about something. But here, I, I bring that up because we're looking at some wisdom from Christ. 
He's giving us some advice about just a, a daily thing. When you go to a wedding, don't take the best seat, you know, and what have you. And he's saying this, so when Jesus speak, speaks, we should listen. We should be like that commercial of E.F. Hutton. And somebody says, you know, well, if you ask me, you know, it was Jesus who said, what? What did Jesus say about this topic? What did Jesus have, his, what was his word on this? And we want to be, we want to know what he, what he said. So, you know, it's important to know this piece of advice when we're looking for the, the high seat or the attention, that we don't look for it, that we're not after it. But that's what the Pharisee was doing. You know, the best seat. How many of you think, and I don't know if any of you still do it, but probably most likely in high school, when your buddies, you know, you guys are going to get in the car and you're going to go somewhere and you're walking to the car and somebody yells out, I call shotgun. I got shotgun. And it's, I got shot. I said it first. No, no, you can't say it if the car's not in view and all this stuff. And it goes back and forth and whatever. Because you want the best seat. You're, you might be, well, in high school, you might be going to cruise the high schools and you want to be in the front. You don't want to be with the guys in the back. You want to be up in the front. Whatever the case might be. But calling for that for, because you want the attention. You want that best seat. But that carried over here spiritually for the religious leaders. Wanting that best seat. You know, when you enter someone's home, when you enter someone's home and you walk into their living room, you can probably tell which is the best seat. You know, the, the guy might have his recliner there. The remote might be on it. There might be a little beverage holder right there. It might just have a little blanket, you know, a little pillow for the head. You know that is the choice seat. That is probably the man of the house, his chair. Maybe the woman of the house has her chair. And those are the seats when you walk in and you go, hey, how's it going? You don't go and take that seat. After all, that is his seat. Take another seat. They offer you that one, great. But you don't want to get in the seat and say, sorry, buddy, man, but that's my chair. Nobody sits in my chair. And then you, in disgrace, are going to get up and go sit down on a little stool, whatever it might be. But we want the best seat, but you don't go after the best seat. We're talking spiritually, like, like here. This was a situation. You know, I mentioned I was in uh, Idaho uh, about two weeks ago, I guess it is now. And, um, you know, we went and had uh, dinner at the, uh, the Williams uh, Kenny. And Peggy, and, uh, you know, we went into their house, and we were, we were looking around, and wow, it's beautiful, everybody's sitting around, and uh, there's a couple of chairs, and uh, I took, I was about to take a seat on the end of a sofa, and Kenny was, I think, in this nice little comfortable chair, and he says, oh, no, sit over here. I figured that's Kenny's chair. He's being generous. I'm not going to take your seat. That is your seat. So I sat over there. And I, was, I had shared that as making a point that I wouldn't go after his chair. I wouldn't want to go into someone's seat and just take the best seat in the house because I may be asked to be moved. Later on, uh, Kenny mentioned, he said, jokingly, I believe, that he was using reverse psychology and trying to get me to sit in that old chair so he could have the better seat and put his feet up on the sofa. But I think he was joking. I'm still not clear on that. But with this Pharisee, we get the impression that well, we know that Jesus is the guest of honor. He has the best seat. But I think Simon is trying to take it for himself in this scenario. For wanting to have Jesus so badly in his, in his house. Now look at Luke uh, 737. The next verse. It says here, Now there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster uh, vial of perfume. Now, 
Interesting to note this woman. Who is this woman? This is the second person of this situation here that's taking place. She's traditionally portrayed as a prostitute. But we don't necessarily have that info. I could see where people would lean that way. I could see where maybe it got confused to be that way. But she was known in the city as a sinner. So there's a lot of reasons I could understand maybe that you could conclude that. But traditionally, she's portrayed as one, whatever the case is, and I'm not about to say that she is, but whatever her sin was, it was public knowledge. The city knew that that woman was a sinner. Maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she fell into some sin. Whatever she did was was a, a serious sin or of serious nature. And you know what's interesting about this woman is that no name is provided. We don't have a name for her. And It's been said that we should place our name right there. And you'll see why. There is no name for this woman. We don't know who she is. We know that she is a sinner, and the city knew her. So she is walking around in her life with a reputation. And everyone knows. Now it says here that, and there was a woman. And I think in the King James and the English Standard Version, I believe, It says, behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. And it's interesting, that word, which is idu, because it's a word that we wouldn't normally say, the word behold. You don't normally say, you know, I bought this new uh, deal here, and hey, guys, behold, I bought something new. That's not a word that we commonly say. You don't normally do that. If you're joking around, you might say, hey, guys, behold, new shirt. And you're joking, but you don't really use that word, but you know what? We really do use that word, because this Greek word, idu, It is a word that basically means it's an emphasis of check it out. Check this out. Now, how many of us say that? Check it out. Hey, check this out. When this is being written, it says, and check this out. A woman in the city who was a sinner shows up. There's an emphasis that this woman, check this out now. Okay, Jesus is here. They're reclining. People are around. They're watching. And check it out, man. This woman comes in. And she's a sinner. And everybody knows who she is. But no name is given. It says here that she learned that he was reclining at the table. And that Greek word, epignosko, epignosko means to be thoroughly acquainted, to know accurately. You see, she learned that Jesus was reclining there. In other words, she knew for sure. Now, whether, how that played out, whether she was asking, is he coming? Is he there? Is it really him? She did her homework, let's say, because she knew for sure Jesus was there. How many of us can remember the time when we learned about Jesus? When we learned about maybe who he was and what he was there for and how he wanted us? You know, I think of uh, a couple of things of myself. When I was a kid, elementary I believe it was, uh, chick tracks. I loved those things. I just used to trip out on those. I would love to collect them, and I don't know where I would get them, but I I would just love to read them. The artwork was great. You know, you have these guys, they're sweating. They're like, oh, no, I have to repent, and they're all sweating. Just really cool, and I loved the stories, but I learned about Christ. I learned that I'm going to hell without Christ. I learned that I need to be born again, but I did nothing. Another time when I learned about Christ as I was growing up was, again, in, in elementary, and I went to a summer camp, our school sent us to a summer camp where they offered it, and a teacher paid a, for uh, my brother and myself to go. 
And we went to this camp. I had no clue what it was. And when I got there, I realized this is a Christian camp. And I, I was tripping out on it, but I fell in love with it because everybody was just sweet, loving, and we sang songs and we all cleaned and everything together. It was incredible. And I remember the one night when they were doing some things around the campfire, singing some songs, and we're all sitting in this little uh, you know, um, steps along the, along the fire. And the guy's singing, and then he's, he invites everyone to receive Christ. He says, if you want Jesus Christ to live in your heart, stand up and receive Christ. We were sitting down, I remember, bowed and with our heads kind of down. And as a young person, I remember I was with my older brother, one of my brothers, and I thought to myself, I want to do this. I wanted to do it. I really honestly would have stood up, but I was waiting for my brother to stand up first. And he didn't. And so he didn't stand up, so I didn't. And that's, I've, those are the early times that I remember of learning about Christ. An opportunity to go to him, to be forgiven, but didn't act on it. Now here, these local dinners are public. People know who's there. People are watching. They're listening to the conversation between Jesus and Simon the Pharisee. And here, this woman who is a sinner is known. She's perhaps sexually immoral. Whatever she did in this town, everyone knew. But she still, she was not deterred. And she goes. She goes to see Christ. I'm sure she had many reasons to stay home. And all those reasons were standing around watching the dinner. And every one of those persons could have been a reason for her not to go because of perhaps shame, guilt, ridicule. But she does. Look at verse 38. The beauty begins. It says in verse 38, And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. So what an incredible scene. It's a moment of, 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 of glory. It's a beautiful moment that's taking place right here. But you can contrast that with the Pharisee who invited Jesus with a selfish motive. And now we see the woman who invites herself basically with a selfless motive. It says that she was standing, and the Greek word there is histemi. Histemi, and it means to make firm, to establish, to, uh, steadfast of mind, with no hesitation. She made, established herself, and she stood there. She went there on a mission to see Christ. And she stood there, steadfast of mind, without hesitation, I don't know what that looked like, but when she learned, she probably grabbed the vial and it sounds like she just went without hesitation. And it says that she stood behind him at his feet. That's important to understand that the way they would sit and eat or kind of lay is with a small table, they would be kind of on their side, on an elbow, laid out. And one side was the, the rear and the other side they're facing each other as they're talking. And so Jesus is in that position. So it's important to understand how is it that she's behind him if he's laying on the ground? Well, she stood behind him at his feet. Perhaps she couldn't get to his head because of other people. Perhaps that's the way she wanted to anoint him with that perfume. 
But she is standing behind him. That word is opiso, which means behind. But it's, you need to understand that's what she was doing. Standing basically with his, at his heels, facing, toes facing the other way. And it says that she began to wet his feet. That word wet, she wet his feet with her tears. That word breco. Breco means to pour like rain. She was crying. This woman, <laughs> this is, I, you know, I look at this thing. I, you know what? Here's where we have to apply the scriptures to our lives. Am I this woman? And I don't mean am I involved in sin and on and on. That could mean that. But what I mean is, do I, am I like this with Christ? Do I want to pour out my tears? Do, am I grateful for him, what he offers, what he's done for me? And so pouring out like rain, you know, a couple of times, I could think of a couple of times where, think about it yourself when you've cried like that, and it feels like the tears don't stop. They are literally running down. I think of a couple of times when I was, again, a kid, and here, I think it was still elementary, um, I had one of those breco moments, if you will, of tears going down, and I couldn't believe it. And it was a time when I was being disciplined. I was disciplined by my father, and uh, I had this crazy idea in my head to uh, get this wax, it was like this orange wax of some sort, and to go to the side of my house and write some graffiti on it. And, you know, that's what people did. So I wanted to try it, and I did it on my own house. And my brother was like, oh, you're going to get in trouble. I'm going to tell Dad. And I'm like, ah, whatever. And I'm thinking in my mind, oh, he probably is going to tell Dad. He does tell my father. My father gets home. And when my dad would get home, you would hear the boots walking in. And if you were good that day, hey, Dad's home. But if you were bad, oh, those boots, wow. Anyway, he disciplined me, and he disciplined me well. And I was sent to his room, actually, to stand in a corner in the dark. And as I stood there, I cried. And my tears were pouring out. But I literally thought I was bleeding because I just felt on and on. I think, wow, he really let me have it. I'm bleeding. I'm going to die. And then they turn on the lights eventually, and I realized I was filled with tears. But they were pouring. And this woman had that kind of thing going on of pouring tears. They were dropping I had another opportunity, a moment like that, when I got saved. I had uncontrollable tears. <laughs> and those tears were of joy and surrender. <laughs> Breco. So this woman, this woman is standing behind the Lord. And she is pouring out tears she begins to wipe his feet, to kiss his feet. She lets her hair down. And the Greek word for kissing says that she was kissing again and again, tenderly. And so she was, everything she was doing was culturally offensive. Because whatever this woman's sin was, and if it was something of an immoral nature, it was what is going on here. But I, if you know a broken person and the tears are falling, you know that nothing is wrong with this scene. There's almost everything right about it. And she's, and so she's, she, what she's doing is intimate, and there's, there's a beautiful meaning to it. It's an incredible, beautiful moment taking place. 
But then, like the proverbial record scratch, the Pharisee speaks, or he thinks. He has something to say. And it's like that proverbial scratch of a record, the record player, if you know what those are. <laughs> and it's just, you know, because look at verse 39. In verse 39, and leave it to a Pharisee to spoil a beautiful moment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is, who is touching him, that she is a sinner. That pharisaical response that takes place right here is more like, he's like, ugh. He starts to question the Lord. And he only questions the Lord is, is if he was a prophet, he minimizes Christ to simply a prophet. But he's, he's ruining the moment and his heart is not even understanding what's going on. He's appalled by the woman. How could Jesus allow this? But you know what? Why did the Pharisee allow this to continue? If the Pharisee knew this woman was a sinner in the city and here she is doing something to his guest and if he was really appalled, why does he allow it? We can speculate, but perhaps it's because part of his entrapment. Well, I'm just going to let this play out and see what's going on. If he's of that mindset, that Pharisee of self-righteousness, he, it's working in his favor. Ah, look at this guy. All the people will see that this guy is not who he is or isn't you know, a righteous man or what have you. So you know what's happening here is the Pharisee's heart does, it blinds him to a beautiful moment that's taking place. You know, we have to guard ourselves. We have to guard our hearts that we don't allow um, ourselves to have these pharisaical moments. These moments where we, something beautiful is taking place, but we have something self-righteous to say about it. You know, like, you know, what's that person doing here? Oh, my goodness, I can't believe that guy is here. You know what he's been up to? You know what I heard about him? You know what he did? You know why he was in prison? All these things come up and all this pharisaical kind of thoughts ruin the moment that someone is in reach for the gospel. And so here, this guy is so blinded by it, he doesn't see it. And you know what? It's like, it's like you could be at church. We could be at church, let's say, and somebody comes in, and, and uh, uh, let's say I use the name Ralph all the time. I don't know a Ralph. If your name is Ralph, I apologize. When I meet a Ralph, I'm going to stop using this name. But let's say Ralph shows up to church, and you tell the other guys, guys, look, Ralph's here. Praise the Lord, I can't believe Ralph is, you know, oh, I'm so glad. And then someone will be like, you know, he's only here because his wife forced him. It's like, I don't care why he's here. He's here. Let's minister. There's work to be done. So we got to guard ourselves that we don't become Pharisees in that level. Because we think of Pharisees and, oh, Jesus says, woe to them, woe to you, woe to you, you know, your whitewashed tombs and what have you. But then there's also this kind of a Pharisee moments that we can have, that we got to guard ourselves from. We can't forget our sinful past. We can't forget where we've come from. Look at verse 40. Luke 7, 40 says, And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. Well, to begin with, Simon didn't say anything. He was thinking something. But here's Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, who is reading his mind, or I should say, reading his heart. 
reading his mind some, some kind of new agey thing, right? But he knows the heart of man, and he can read, and he knows what you're thinking, and he knows what Simon's thinking. And it says, so here you have Simon saying, you know, he said to himself, if then were a prophet, and questioning the Lord, and Jesus answered him and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, oh, you know, say it. You know, it's interesting that I don't know how Simon responded. Was caught off guard? Was he like, I mean, if he's thinking something negative, like, I can't believe this is, look at this guy. Hey, Simon, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have something to tell you. Oh, what? Maybe he played it off well, maybe not. But Jesus knew his heart and he addresses him. And he says, you know, it says, um, well, you know what? Thinking of this, Jesus, no, reading the hearts, there's other times when he said that he said a couple of things before when he's read someone's heart. He says, why are you reasoning in your hearts? This isn't the first time or the only time Jesus did this where he saw someone, what they were thinking, and he knew it. And he, there's a place where he said, why are you reasoning in your hearts? There's a time when he spoke to these religious leaders and says, why do you think evil in your hearts? You see, we don't get a pass because we are Christians. We don't get a pass for those pharisaical movements. Those are moments that we need to learn from, change, and rid from our lives. Or we too will become deeper and deeper in a way that is, is wrong, living, and the Lord will see it every time. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Right now, Simon, the Pharisee, his dinner plans are about to backfire. In verse 41, it begins with a parable, uh, parable, and Jesus says this, and let's read the parable together. A moneylender had two, debt, two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. In verse 42, it says, When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have judged correctly. Ding, ding, ding. Simon, you've answered correctly. That word suppose, I suppose the one whom forgave more, in the Greek, it shows that Simon was weighing out his options, like anybody would. But here is a serious spiritual moment for Simon. And he weighed out his answer, thinking, uh, well, I suppose, like, where is this leading? Where is this going? I suppose the one who forgave more. And right at this moment, with this parable, Jesus is almost like giving Simon a spiritual punch in the face. Perhaps I should say a spiritual punch in the heart. He convicts him, or at least he gives him something to be convicted about when he basically says, you know what? Look at verse 44, the first part of verse 44 in chapter 7. Turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? We'll stop right there. Turning toward the woman, Jesus hasn't looked at the woman at this point. Based on what we see here, Jesus was there reclining, they're talking, perhaps snacking, whatever the case is. She shows up and begins to bawl and anoint his feet and wipe with her hair and kiss his feet. And Jesus, that we see, is not looking. He is focused on the Pharisee. It, and I get because I think he knows where her heart is. She's okay. I'm worried about you, Simon. 
And so here he hasn't even looked at the woman, but now turning toward the woman, his heart and focus still on Simon. Do you see this woman? Jesus knows Simon Caesar. He clearly knows. He's driving home the point. Jesus is focused on him. And you know what happens is, you know when, when I was saying when you walk to someone's home and you're greeted and you know, you're, hey, how's it going, a hug and what have you. Um, normally, Jesus is going to go after him uh, about this. You walk into someone's home and they'll take your coat. Uh, they'll give you a hug or a handshake. Um, they'll offer you something to drink, something to snack. All the normal things that you would do in hospitality when someone comes in. And Jesus says, Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Man, I, wa- I wish I could see Jesus, how he's talking to Simon. I wish I could be there and see how Simon's responding. I want to see how Simon was well, maybe tripped up when he said, I have something to tell you, Simon, when he's thinking the worst about Christ. In verse uh, 744, the second part of that verse, 44, it says, I entered your house. Now check this out. I have something to tell you, Simon. He's given the parable. Do you see this woman? He, I know he sees him, but he make it a point. I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He goes on and says, you gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. He goes on further and says, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. In verse 47, it says, For this reason I say to you, her sins, Simon, for this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. But this woman, her sins were many. It says that her sins were many. And that word in the Greek is polus. Polus means they were many or they were large. They were great. Her sins were incredibly great. Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. And there's a beautiful message there for all of us. Your sins, which might be many, can be forgiven. Some people uh, live their lives thinking they can't. Some people don't make the effort and go to Christ for forgiveness because they think they can't. They think they are too many, too great, too large. It says that your many sins have been forgiven and that forgiven is present tense. It's a past action continuing. It's something that has happened. So now in verse 47, it's it's debated whether she was already saved before she got there or that at that moment she's repenting and she's being saved. There's arguments both ways and I can see with the Greek even saying that, you know, there's something that took place and it's continuing. It took place when? And I'm not here to try and solve that. What I'm here to point out is that she is forgiven. And what we have here is we know that she is forgiven. And we know that something that took place, if she showed up and she was there to completely find the one 
and show appreciation and love to the one who has forgiven her. Or perhaps she got there to find out, is this the one who will forgive me? Either way, she is, past tense, she was saved. So Jesus, maybe she was on her way. And she was already heart changed. I'm going to go and show him that I'm changing my life. Saved. Shows up and Jesus is there. She is. You're good. You're saved. But I'm worried about Simon. But then when he does turn, it's turning and it's for Simon. But he's telling Simon that her many sins have been forgiven. So Jesus, we see he contrasts the, the Pharisee with the woman or the sinner. In front of everybody. Everybody that's there to watch, Simon is saying, I'm going to invite them. I want to make sure there's a lot of snacks there. Everybody could hear our conversations with Christ. And then this takes place. The Pharisee exalted himself and the woman humbled herself. Jesus humbled the Pharisee and Jesus exalted the woman. Remember the passage in Luke 14? Not to take the best seat or you'll be asked to move, but to take the lowly seat and you will be exalted, this woman took a position behind Christ at his feet and was exalted and forgiven. The woman's actions were actions of love. The, you know, the, the, the parable doesn't teach or say that uh, her actions saved her. Absolutely not. They are simply the contrast of that parable. Her actions are because she's been forgiven much. That's why she was doing that. That's what forgiveness looks like. And you know, if you look at what she is doing, you could think of it this way. Um, when someone, if someone were to bless you incredibly, or let's just say you're out for a swim and you begin to drown, and someone shows up, sees you drowning, and saves your life. Nobody would have been there, but that one person was there, saves your life. You can go back to your wife, your kids. You can go back to the ministry. Whatever it was, your life was spared because of that person. You would feel like you owe that person your life. You're indebted to them. They saved your life. And the same way, you know, the Bible says in 1 John 4.19, um, we love him because he first loved us. You see, the response would be, I'm going, that guy saved my life. I owe him my life. You've heard the phrase, I owe you uh, my life. Man, I'm indebted to you. I owe you my life. I wouldn't be alive without you. That's the same mindset that we should have for Christ because we owe him our faithfulness. We owe him all that we have. He has given all for us. Romans 12.1 says this in, in the English Standard Version. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In the King James, it says, which is your reasonable service. And the reason why it says that in the Greek, it's basically saying that's what you reasonably should be doing. That's what's most logical for you to do is to give up, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice to the one who died for you. Just imagine on the natural level, your life is saved because someone saw you drowning. How grateful you would be but now imagine if that person lost their life while they were saving you. How grateful you would be and how you would live with that. Christ laid down his life for us. And we, our logical response, our reasonable response or service 
should be to serve him, to be, present our bodies as a living sacrifice. You know, there is a song that, uh, that I love, an old hymn. And I'm going to read you those, a few of the lines here. It's a short song. Because it's a beautiful, to me, it is a beautiful song. And it just ties in with the heart of this woman. And it's, it's, uh, it's called, Why Should He Love Me So? Now, it says this. Love sent my Savior to die in my stead. Why should he love me so? Meekly to Calvary's cross he was led. Why should he love me so? Nails pierced his hands and his feet for my sin. Why should he love me so? He suffered sore my salvation to win. Why should he love me so? Oh, how he agonized there in my place. Why should he love me so? Nothing withholding my sin to a face. Why should he love me so? Why should my Savior to Calvary go? Why should he love me so? That song is beautiful to me, and it should be beautiful to all of us when we think of what he went through for us. This woman's sins were great, and she was forgiven and she loved much because she, was been, she had been forgiven much. And everybody saw it. And Jesus made it clear. I think there's a lot to be said when people were thinking, look at this woman. What's she doing here? Look what she's doing. I can't believe they let her in and what have you. And then it takes place where Jesus says, you know, look at her. You see her? Her sins are many. Everybody's hearing this. Her sins are many, everyone, and they are forgiven. In verse, 30, in verse 48, Jesus says something here, and I think it's, it's interesting what he says, because in verse uh, 47, when, he, when he's speaking to Simon, or I'm sorry, for this reason I say to you, her sins are many, which are forgiven, for she loved much, and she is forgiven much, loves much. In verse 48, it says, Then he said to her, Your sins have been forgiven. Now we know she's not saved right there at that moment. Your sins have been forgiven, or your sins are forgiven, and now it's happening. We know it happened already. She's showing great love because of the great forgiveness that she's received. There's a sense of, of an assurance of salvation here, or a, a reassurance, a, a, an encouragement about her salvation, her forgiveness, her sins were many. And many people feel as though, how could he love me so? How could he love me so with the things that I've done? And here he says, your sins have been forgiven. He said it to her. And the Lord says that to us. Your sins have been forgiven. Don't live with the shame. Don't live in the past. Live in the now, and that is in forgiveness. No one should feel, well, you know what, though? I didn't do much in my life. I really wasn't forgiven much. You know what? We were saved from much. Separation from God. We've all been saved. We've all been forgiven much. We've all been saved from much. Some people might think that they have too much sin to be, to be saved, and 
and they live this way, and, and it, it's heartbreaking. You know, um, when, my, uh, when my father uh, passed away, it was about a, a, a week. He got, he, he got saved about a week before he died, and I was with him. I was with him. Let's see. Well, about a week before he died, he was in the hospital. And so we were talking, and I thought, oh, i got to keep telling about the Lord, you know. And, and what happened, and I did, and I told him again that night. And I remember he said something. He said, hmm. he was concerned he was concerned that he had too much sin to be forgiven. I assured him he didn't and that salvation was there. And he didn't repent that night. I went home sad. And then uh, it was, I, I, I'm trying to get the timeline down. It might have been the next day. But he was still in that hospital room. When I went back and, and we talked about it again, and he was ready. And he received the Lord. And that was about maybe five days before he passed. Yeah. But you know what? There's people that live that way. And, and they think that there's just too much that they won't be forgiven. But look at the beautiful picture we have here. This lady, her sins were many. And he reassured her <laughs> in verse 48. Then he said to her, now he's looking at her, and he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. And then in verse 49 it says, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't live with this hovering over your mind and your heart. You are saved. You are new. And the Lord wants us to know that today. If you are living with this shame of the past because your sins were many or they were great, you've been forgiven. If you've surrendered to Christ, if you've repented and turned from those sins, that's the past. We learn from the past. We don't want to repeat the past. We go forward in forgiveness in our salvation. Amen? And so he said to her, to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And I want to read one last passage from another book to give us encouragement and to know that, you know what? There's, there's just a beauty in our new lives in Christ. And, and uh, in Titus chapter 3, Verse 1 through 7, it says this. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures, our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But, but when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, 
But because of his mercy, he washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous and gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. I want to end with that because I want us to know that there is work to be done. There is a a life to live in Christ, doing the things that are just kind of outlined here and knowing that we have been forgiven. I want everybody, number one, if you have not come to Christ, to turn to Christ, to turn and know that he, he is watching you. He wants you saved. He wants to cleanse you from all that sin, from all unrighteousness. He wants you to have a new life. You might be living your life in the darkness because you're so ashamed of your sin. You might even be saved and living hindered because of the shame that you carry of your past sins. That stuff is gone. That thing is past. And we want to live our lives with this kind of encouragement, knowing that Jesus has said to you, if you or when you surrender to Christ, if you have surrendered to Christ... He has said to you, your sins have been forgiven, even if they were many. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace, he said. Your faith has saved you. Not the washing of the feet. Your faith. Her faith saved her because she trusted in the Lord. Amen. I think this is a beautiful passage of Scripture. There is so much even more to learn when we think of who we don't want to be in this and who we want to be and, of course, who Jesus is and who he can be for us. And if he's not that Savior for you, uh, I, I urge you to turn to the Lord and, and, and end the life of misery without him. And you won't ever regret it. Amen. Praise the Lord, brothers and sisters. Let's bow our hearts and seek the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. Your word is precious to us. You are precious to us. Lord, you are everything in our lives. I pray that we tonight, as a result of this study, as a result of our prayer time, of our growing in you, Lord, that we would grow and become stronger in our faith, that we, if we're hanging on to the past, would let it go, that we would move forward, we would move forward in you, in our new lives And Lord, I pray for anyone who struggles in the area of living in shame or the past. Lord, help them to know that your words to them are that they are forgiven and that they should go and move forward in peace. Lord, I pray that all of us tonight would understand this, embrace it, and rejoice together. And right now, Lord, that we would just move forward and go in peace. And Lord, we all pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.